right, amen. Let me invite you this morning to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 21. Our text will be Exodus 21, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read this, and then we'll pray together and pray God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Exodus chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her master's. And he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, Who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money." Father, we come before you this morning knowing that we need your help. We need your help to believe in your promises. We need your help to understand your law. We need your help to cut through um, the difficulties in working through a text like this. But Lord, we also come in faith knowing that you are able to speak to us today through your word. We believe that all of it is true. All of it is inspired and all of it is for our benefit. I ask God that you would give us a heart that is humble this morning, that we would be teachable as we come to the text. I pray that you would give us a heart of reverence as we look into your law, that we would be um, filled with a sense of respect, that we would honor you, make us teachable. And we pray that as we study through this, that you would encourage us, that our faith would be deepened and strengthened, that our understanding of your goodness and your glory and your grace would be greater today for having looked into the truth of your word and seen you, for having seen your glory. So Lord, we pray for your help. We pray it in faith. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Texts like this one can be difficult. Um, Those who were part of my small group this past week were saying, wow, we're going to be praying for you, especially the Sunday, and I thank you for that because we need it. Uh, Texts like this one are difficult for a few reasons. Um, First of all, just because where we stand today reading a text like this, Old Testament law in Israel thousands of years ago, dealing with things like slavery, It's so far removed from our modern experience that it can just be hard to understand the context. Um, Certain terms like slave carry a different meaning in our day and age because of what happened here, because of the transatlantic slave trade in the 18th and 19th century. 
So it's very difficult for us to even study and read a text like this and not import certain meaning and assumptions and values into an ancient context. So it's easy to read a text like this and have the wrong picture in our heads. But the difficulty is more than that. It's not just that we could read this text and get the wrong picture in our heads. It's that we could very easily have the wrong emotional reaction in our hearts. Because we know the horrors of slavery in the United States, because we are aware of the tragic and shameful legacy of what happened here, we might read a text like this and be tempted to actually question God himself. If this is what God's law commands, you might be tempted to think, then how can God be good? How can this be just? Some people will read a passage like this and be confused. Others still may read a text like this and be a little bit embarrassed. It's like God is that weird uncle at the family reunion and you hope he doesn't drink too much and start talking loudly. You know, you're a little bit embarrassed about some of these kinds of things because we don't know what to do with it. But some people will read a text like this and actually become angry and take on the role of the prosecuting attorney and demand that God explain himself, demand that God somehow justify his behavior. So before we even jump into this text, I want to just zoom out for a moment and affirm for us two irrefutable truths, that God is good, and that secondly, God is just or righteous. Psalm 25 verse 8 says, good and upright is the Lord. Psalm 34, verse 8 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 100, verse 5 says, The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 106, verse 1 tells us, Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 107, verse 1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 119, verse 39 tells us, Your rules are good. Psalm 119, verse 68, the psalmist writes, You are good, and you do good. Teach me your statutes. Psalm 145, verse 9, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is is over all that he has made. And that's only scratching the surface. We could go on and on and on because the testimony of Scripture is that God is good. He is good. And he is also just or righteous. Psalm 19 verse 9 says, The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And that includes these rules. Psalm 119, verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous. They are just. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4 says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So listen, if we come to a text like our text this morning in Exodus 21, And we come away thinking, because of what we read, that maybe God is not good, or that his rules are not just, that he may not be righteous. Then let this be clear. 
The problem is not with what we are reading. The problem is how we are reading. It's because of a deficient seeing, a deficient kind of hearing. The problem is with us. Perhaps it's simply a lack of understanding. Maybe some of us haven't studied this out in depth before. And if that's the case, then good teaching can resolve those questions and assure us, yes, that God is good and God is just. But when the truth is taught and explained and the comprehensive testimony of Scripture is brought to bear and still there is a resistance to God and resistance to His Word, if God is still being accused of not being good or just, then that can only mean one thing, unbelief. It's unbelief. I was reading this morning just in my own personal reading from Ezekiel chapter 33, and God speaks to Ezekiel the prophet, and he says, your people say the way of the Lord is not just when it is their own way that is not just. What a rebuke. What a rebuke that people would tell God he is not just. And he says, here's the reality. You're the ones who have the wrong conception of justice. So a text like this may be hard to understand, but we need to remember that we are not the standard or the measure of justice or goodness. God is. God is the standard. Let that be known. If we struggle to see his goodness, then we need to acknowledge that the problem is not with God. The problem is not with his word. The problem is with us. The problem is a deficient kind of seeing and a deficient kind of hearing that fails to perceive what is there, which is the goodness of God. So I cannot promise to answer every question we might have this morning about a text like this. I can't promise to exhaustively explain every possible ancient social arrangement But I do have a goal this morning. My aim today is that as we walk through the Mosaic laws on slavery here, my goal, my aim is that we would see the goodness of God and that we would hear something of an echo of the gospel, of salvation. That's really the two points this morning, that we would see the goodness of God and hear the echo of salvation. So let's look at those together. Number one, we see the goodness of God because the biblical regulations for slavery point us to a God who is good. These regulations in verse 1 through 11, they point us to a God who is good. And God's goodness can be seen in four ways, I think, in this text. And this is going to be a lot of explanation, but I think we need this. We need this instruction. We need to understand what's going on here. So four ways in which God's goodness is seen. And first of all, God's goodness is seen in that these regulations regarding slavery have a purpose. And the purpose is good. The purpose is provision for the needy. Provision for the needy. It says in verse 1, Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. So what does it mean to be a slave in that context? What is being referred to here? And what does it mean to buy a slave? Well, we have to understand that this word in Hebrew, abed, this word for slave, it has a broad range of meaning. It can mean an indentured servant. It can refer to someone who's serving a judicial sentence. Someone might be sentenced to a number of years of servitude for a crime. It can refer also to someone who's paying off a debt. They have no money to offer, so instead they work it off. 
It can refer to day laborers who are getting paid. It can refer to contract workers who sign up for a period of time. This word servant or slave can have a broad range of meaning. And here in this passage, it's referring specifically to a Hebrew slave, to one of their fellow countrymen, a member of the covenant community. And they were to treat Hebrew slaves in a certain way. Leviticus chapter 25 verse 39 says, If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. This is a contract laborer. Verse 42 tells us, For they are my servants. This is God speaking. My servants, my slaves, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt, they shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. You see, the purpose of slavery, of Hebrew slavery, was to help those who are in need. It's for someone who becomes poor, and they see this as their recourse. This is their way to get out of poverty, and they were to be treated a certain way. They were to be treated a certain way. So when it says when you buy a Hebrew slave, God is not referring here to ownership of another person as mere property. That's chattel slavery. That's, that's what happened here in the United States where someone was less than human and they had no rights and the master could do whatever he pleased with them. That was not what was going on here in ancient Israel. This kind of servitude is actually more similar to what we have today in pro sports or in the military. It's an agreement on both sides with terms and conditions where there's full authority and control given, whether it's to a sports team or to the military. They have control over a player or over a soldier, whatever it may be, for a certain amount of time. But it is not mere ownership as property. What's especially important to notice here is that such an arrangement is voluntary. This was voluntary. A Hebrew slave entered into slavery voluntarily of their own choice. This was a way out for them. It was a way out for those who were in debt. It's a way out for those who were facing the crushing burden of poverty. Their circumstances, yes, may have been unwanted and forced them into it. But this was something that was within their power to do in order to escape those circumstances. This is not the loss of agency. It's the exercise of it. This is voluntary. In fact, God's law had zero tolerance for involuntary slavery, for kidnapping and selling people as slaves. In verse uh, 16 of this same chapter, if you just look down the page, notice what it says. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Put to death. Friends, this one verse completely condemns what happened in the United States in terms of slavery. So what's going on here in ancient Israel is radically different. The servitude referred to here was radically different than what happened in the United States. It likewise would have been radically different than what happened with all of their neighbors in the surrounding nations. And most importantly, it was radically different than their own experience back in Egypt. These people had been slaves And they were not to be those kind of slaves anymore. So the slavery here is not oppression. It's provision. It's provision for needy people. It's a social safety net for the unfortunate. And so the purpose of this, 
The purpose is provision for the needy. So when we, when we think about the idea of slavery in this Old Testament context, understand this, there is goodness in it. And goodness is seen in the provision for the needy. Can we all agree that providing for the needy, giving them a way to better their circumstances is a good thing? Because that's what this is. There's a second way we see God's goodness in this. We see God's goodness in the fact that the goal of this servitude is freedom for all. The goal is freedom. Verse 2, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. Notice, and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. So this slavery was not only voluntary, but secondly, it was temporary. It's temporary. They were to go free on year seven. God intends for debtors, for the poor, to get a second chance. They're not doomed to slavery forever because of either unwanted circumstances that were outside their control or even because of bad decisions, mismanagement, laziness, whatever it may be. There is a second chance for those who fall into poverty or debt for whatever the reason may be. After six years of working for someone else, six years of earning an income, six years of gaining valuable experience in the workforce, six years of gaining valuable knowledge as they watched someone else run a successful farm or a successful business, then they would get a fresh start, a second chance. In fact, God even commanded that they get funding Venture capital for their second chance. If we look in Deuteronomy chapter 15, we notice that there's a pattern. Just like when the Israelites left Egypt and all of their neighbors gave them gold and silver and supplies, they, they left Egypt wealthy. So also Hebrew slaves, when they finished their six-year term, were to be given resources. Deuteronomy 15.12 says, If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years. And in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. The goal is freedom. And it wasn't just freedom with no chance to be successful. It was freedom that now had new experiences, new knowledge, new good habits that had been built, and even fresh funding. Whether it be from the flock or whether it be seed to plant with, whatever it may be, they were to be furnished by their master. By their master. Philip Ryken comments, slavery had a redemptive purpose. Its goal was not perpetual bondage, but responsible independence. The Hebrew servant was bound for freedom. It's a great little play on words. Bound for freedom. He's right. Verse 3 clarifies a few things about when it is that they go free on that seventh year. Clarifies that their condition upon entering was also to be their condition upon leaving. If he comes in single, Moses writes, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If he brought family in, that family at the end of six years, that family had no further obligations to the master. But there was the possibility that marriage might happen at some point during their 
their period of labor. And verse 4 addresses this kind of a situation. Remember, this is the case law. This is giving examples for future generations of how they could sort out various circumstances that may arise, how they could apply justice and fairness in their society. So look in verse 4. It says, If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. And this is where we might start asking some questions. Why does God give these instructions through Moses? Well, first of all, this instruction honored the master's investment. If his master gives his servant a wife, it indicates that the master had control over her. She was his servant, which means that she worked for him. And it also means that he had the responsibility to provide for her, to meet her needs, to house her, and to protect her. So he had rights, even though they became married, to the wife's time and skill as a worker. And he had an investment that had been made over the years in her as a person. So their marriage did not automatically dissolve that. This man, the master, had borne the burden of providing also for any children that may have been born to this union. And as much as our kids may be hard workers, we know they don't pull usually as much weight as adults, right? So this master had been providing for these children as well. So for this man to go out alone, what it says here in verse 4, he shall go out alone, it does not mean that the marriage is dissolved. What it means is that the master still retains basically employer rights for the wife and the children's service. Though this man was to go out alone and he was getting a fresh start, the wife and the children still worked for their old master. They were not available for the new endeavors of the former servant. But bear in mind that this doesn't mean that there's no other options. There are other options. And we see that in verse 5. And there's even another option that's not mentioned here. Um, The former servant could redeem his wife and any children that may have been born. It was an option for him to go out and earn enough money to buy out their contract. And this actually protected women and children in this way. If you had a man who had fallen into poverty and debt because he was irresponsible, because he made bad decisions, because he was lazy, well, he had to sort of go out and prove himself before he was going to be entrusted with the care of a wife and children. This protected women and children from being entrusted to the care of someone who was irresponsible. Again, maybe there's reasons why that man had entered into slavery in the first place. And if the man did have to go out alone, if he did have to leave his wife and children working for the old master, this would have provided a powerful motivator for him to become established, to be disciplined, and to start being successful and profitable so that he could redeem his family. It means he would have been in a good place once his wife and children were sent to join him. So this is actually good for the woman and the children. And it's good for this former servant because it provides motivation and incentive. And it's also good for the master because it protects his investment. So we see the wisdom of this instruction, even though it might sound foreign to our ears. Understanding how it worked in that day and age, we can see God's goodness and his wisdom there. But there's also another option. In verse 5, it says, If the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. 
So again, remember, we're looking at God's goodness here. There's provision for the needy. There is also the goal of freedom. But there's also the option that the servant may choose to stay. To not have his relationship with this master be one that's temporary. It might actually be one that becomes permanent. This would obviously solve the situation in terms of his relationship with his wife and children. There'd be no tension there. They all work for the same master together. But in this resolution for the the situation of a husband and and a wife being married and both being slaves together, we also also see a, a third aspect of God's goodness on display. And the third is this. We see the option here of mutually beneficial lifelong service. What other society would have something like this? The option of a mutually beneficial, lifelong servitude. That that's actually an option for slaves. That the masters in Israel were to be the kind of men where someone might want to stay. So think about this. The goal of freedom is freedom. After six years, they are able to go free. This freedom is guaranteed. But the slave himself might choose to make this arrangement permanent. And in such a case, love is to be the motivator. Look in verse 5. If he plainly says, plainly says, not under coercion, but he plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I will not go free. Look here that love is the motivator. If the master is good, if the master is gracious, if the master is fair, it may be that working for a man like this is actually better than trying to strike out on your own. A man may say, you know what, rather than go out there and risk it and try again, I think it would be better just to stay. That actually is an option. And this was to be a public and permanent arrangement. We see the instructions in verse 6 that there's this public ceremony that takes place. This public ceremony ensured protection for slaves, that there's no rash decisions being made. And it's done before God and public witnesses so that there's no he said, she said, where a master claims that someone had promised to stay forever and now they're trying to leave. No, this was a public and permanent arrangement. And notice that it was to be covenantal in nature. It was sealed with blood. Once again, here in Exodus, we have blood on a doorpost. Does that sound familiar? And once again, this blood on the doorpost has covenant significance. They were to take the servant and and go up next to the door, and they would take an awl, a sharp, thin piece of metal, and punch it through the ear, basically getting your ear pierced. Some of you guys have done that before. I haven't, but I don't know if they used ice or anything like that, but they were to go and, and punch a hole through the ear And this was to be significant. Remember, this is a a covenant relationship now. There's agreements on both sides. And this covenant was to be symbolized by a sign. The sign was the pierced ear. It was a perpetual reminder to the master that the master had responsibility for this servant. He was to employ this servant no matter what. Couldn't fire him. He was to provide for this servant no matter what, to meet his needs He had a responsibility for the servant's well-being. But this was also a perpetual reminder for the servant, a reminder that he was to hear and that he was to obey his master. This bond-servant relationship is such a stark contrast, once again, to their experience in Egypt. I mean, think about it. In their bondage there in Egypt, what did the people do? Did they love their master? No. They cried out in agony. They cried out in misery 
to the Lord. They begged him for deliverance. They desperately wanted out. They wanted freedom. But in God's economy, in this covenant community that God was forming, masters were to be so different than the old life in Egypt that their slaves might actually choose to stay, that their slaves might say, I want to become part of this family. Because that's what servants often were considered, part of the family. Even though independence was available to them, there was the opportunity in a situation like this for lifelong, mutually beneficial service. This was love. This was loyalty. And it's supposed to mirror a relationship between master and servant, but not the relationship between Israel and Egypt. It's supposed to mirror the relationship between Israel and her God, a relationship that is marked by love and loyalty, and provision, and protection, and willing service. It's supposed to be a picture of that relationship. And that points us, doesn't it, to the goodness of God. Why did God set Israel free? Remember the words of Moses? He told Pharaoh, let my people go. These are the words of God that Moses is speaking. Let my people go, why? That they may serve me. And serving God is not oppressive. It's a, it's a privilege. It's a joy. It's a blessing to belong to him. So we see the goodness of God on display in this covenant relationship between master and servant, where there's grace and goodness, where there's love and loyalty, and it's marked by blood, a covenant relationship. What a testimony that would have been. But there's a fourth aspect of God's goodness, or fourth way in which we see God's goodness shown. It's not only seen in provision for the needy. It's not only seen in, pull back up the second point here, the goal of freedom for all. There's this built-in freedom every seventh year. It's not only seen in this mutually beneficial, lifelong service that sometimes would have taken place, but it's also seen in protection for those who are vulnerable. And that's really the point of verses 7 through 11. We see the importance here of protecting the vulnerable. Verses 7 through 11 talk about a situation in where there is a young girl who's been sold as a slave. What is her future? What does it mean to sell a daughter into servitude? Well, we need to understand that this is not about getting rid of a daughter. That's not why someone would have sold their daughter into servitude. That's not what's in view here in this passage. And this is not about making money. It's not about, well, you know, I've got a couple girls. I could spare one, and then we'd have some extra cash. That, that's, not what, that's not what's going on here. The, the point of selling a daughter into servitude was about granting her an opportunity for a better life. That is what is in view. And it's likely intended to result in marriage. Marriage in those days was typically an arranged marriage. Uh, that is rare today, although I've got two girls and I'm open to it. I'm open to arranged marriages. Um, if anybody wants to talk to me later, I'm fine with that. But our marriages are usually created in different ways. Um, back then, it was arranged marriage. And so that's what's being talked about here, is arranged marriage. One possible arrangement was that a young girl would serve in a household as a servant. And as she served there, she would learn the ins and outs of that home, getting to know that family. And eventually, she would become a member of that family through marriage. And once she was married, she would no longer be a servant. She would now be 
a member of the family with all the rights and privileges that came with it. So men often entered servitude for financial reasons because of poverty or debt, but women could enter servitude or slavery for other reasons, including marriage, and that's what's in view here. And unlike the, the men, the women were not always set free on year seven. If you had a young girl who's maybe 11, 12, 13 years old, to let her go free and be on her own actually would have put her in danger. So it may seem unfair to us at first glance that they would say, uh, she shall not go out as the male slaves do in verse 7. That freedom is not just automatically granted. That might seem unfair to us, but we have to understand the reason. That that the goal is, is not to restrict her freedom, it's to protect it. It's to protect her. They typically, girls typically did not have inheritance rights for land. She didn't have a homestead to go back to. Girls needed the headship and protection that was offered either through a father or a husband or a just master. So though it may be common today for young women to live on their own and be independent, back in that day and age, it was a dangerous world and they didn't have all of the options and rights that people may have today. So to live alone without any attachments to a family and an established household, that would have put them at a great disadvantage. So this is actually protection for the vulnerable to say that she shall not go out as the male servants do. So God's intention in giving these laws, instituting these laws, is to make sure that the most vulnerable among them, female servants, young female servants, that they would not become the victims of broken promises, that they would not be mistreated. Verse 8 refers to betrothal. It says, if she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, this is betrothal, this is plans of an arranged marriage, but if he decides not to, if he backs out, it says, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. So if a man at one time intended to marry this young girl, decides not to, then God says he has no right to sell her to someone else. If he will not marry her, if he will not lift her out of slavery and into the family through marriage, then his only option is to let her be redeemed by her own family. She can be returned to her father or to her brothers. And there's going to be a financial transaction that will make right whatever his investment was in providing for her and, and, and meeting her needs for however long that may have been. But that's his only option. It's either marry her or allow her to go back to her family. He could not sell her to someone else to make a profit. He could not send her to someone who had no promise of marriage or no loyalty as family. So this was for her protection. But perhaps he had taken her into his household not to marry him, but to marry one of his sons. Verse 9 talks about that situation. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as a daughter. As a daughter. So if a young female servant is designated for a son... And what that means is she's actually supposed to be adopted into the family. To treat her as a daughter means adoption. What this means is that this young girl is no longer a slave. She now has the status of being a member of the family, first as a daughter and eventually as a wife. This is for her protection. This shows us God's goodness. Verse 10 gives us another potential situation. It says, If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her her marital rights. 
And if he does not do these three things for her, then she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. So if the master chooses to marry this servant girl, but then later he decides to take a second wife, and we don't know why the reason may be, and this is not ideal, this is not God's design for marriage, but the fact is, these are the kinds of things that often happened in a broken world. And so God is giving protection for young girls, knowing that people will make foolish decisions like this. So what should happen in a situation like this if he takes a second wife? Well, the man who married her, according to God's law, is not to relegate her to second-class status. She's not to be a second-class wife. She has rights to food, to clothing, and to physical affection, marital rights, something that would have resulted in children who would have been to her honor, who would have had full rights to the inheritance. So this is all for her protection, that she's not to be demoted or neglected or divorced. So if he refuses to give any of these to her, then what Moses says effectively, if he has reverted her to slave status instead of wife status, then his authority as a master is gone. He can't keep her as a slave. And she is allowed to go free with no further obligations to him, and she doesn't have to be redeemed. Her family owes him nothing. Nothing. No obligation to pay anything. She's free to go back to her family because they will care for her. And it will be to his public shame because he would not fulfill his duty to her. So all of this sounds very strange to our ears because we don't live with these kinds of arrangements today. But consider that all of these instructions, verse 7 through 11, is meant to protect the most vulnerable. It's meant to protect women in a patriarchal society. It's meant to make sure that the most needy and endangered among them, slave girls, would not be mistreated, would not become the victims of broken promises. So we can summarize these instructions. The purpose of these social relationships is, number one, provision for the needy. The goal number two is eventual freedom for all who desire it. Year seven means they go free. Third, we see there's even the potential option for mutual blessing, lifelong voluntary service. And we see the goodness of a covenant relationship on display there. And then fourth, there's all these built-in protections for the most vulnerable. So what can we say after reading through all of this material? We can say this, God is a God who loves and who cares for the needy. God is a God who wisely knows the best way to offer help and to give second chances. God knows the best way to provide a social safety net that helps the unfortunate and rehabilitates the undisciplined. And in a broken world where hardship and sin and mistakes all happen, God has concern for the vulnerable and the needy, and he makes provision for that in his law. So while there's certainly many principles that we could apply to our lives here in terms of generosity and justice and wisdom that we could draw, I want to just remind you of what our goal is today. Our goal is to see the goodness of God and to affirm it. This is a call today to you for faith. Christian, you must affirm and believe in the goodness and the justice of God. There are those out there who are scoffers, who hate God, they mock his word, and they will point at passages like this and claim that God is not good or that his law is unjust. And friends, we need to reject that as a lie. Such claims, it's one of three things. They're either lazy, 
They've never even studied it, and this is just a convenient way for them to, to, to throw out an objection. Or they're intellectually dishonest. They don't actually care what's true. They're rather looking for an excuse to justify their sin and unbelief. Or they're simply, if they claim God is not good, they're simply appealing to a different standard of goodness and justice. They're refusing to acknowledge the superior truth of God's word to declare to us what is good. It means they're using a man-created and man-centered standard. But listen, when someone walks up to God, and when they tell God that he doesn't measure up using a puny little yardstick of their own creation, that is the height of arrogance. It's the height of arrogance. So Christian, don't be intimidated by the world's accusations when they mock and they say, yeah, well, your Bible teaches slavery and not letting women go free and all these sorts of things. Don't be intimidated by their accusations. Don't be embarrassed by the teaching of Scripture. Don't listen to the whispers of the devil and even the doubts that may arise in your own heart. God is good. And God is just. This is an eternal truth that we ought to believe and embrace. And embrace it fully. So remember, our goal is, number one, to see the goodness of God. But there's a second goal this morning. I want us to hear the echoes of salvation. The biblical regulations not only point us to a God who is good, but these biblical regulations for slavery also provide for us some beautiful illustrations of gospel realities. Consider this. All throughout the New Testament, we see the language of servitude. Even the, the title of being a slave. And we see that language used to describe our relationship to Christ. Philippians 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. James chapter 1. James calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Peter 1, Peter describes himself as a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. The apostle John in Revelation verse 1 refers to himself as his servant. Over and over and over again, those men who knew Christ and who served him, they wore this title of a servant of Christ, and they wore it with profound gratitude. It is a privilege to belong to Christ, to be submitted to his authority, to know him as Lord. The word Lord in Greek has the idea of master. It is a privilege for us to be bound to Christ for eternity. So the concept that we see here in Exodus of a covenantal bond between a gracious and loving master and a loyal and willing servant, that's really a beautiful picture of what it means to belong to Christ. Consider here in Exodus some of the echoes of this saving relationship that we see. These laws here in Exodus show us that loving service is freedom. Loving service, willing service is freedom. Freedom is not the absence of authority. Think about that. It's not the absence of authority. Freedom, feeling most free, is actually being exactly where you want to be. So for the servant who says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go free. Here's my ear. Nail it to the door. This is where I want to be. That man is free. He's doing exactly what he wants to do. 
living exactly where he wants to live and in a relationship that he desires to be in. The bondservant recognizes that to be a servant in a good master's household is better than being left to yourself. So he wants to be part of that family. And isn't that what happens to us when we hear the call of Christ? When we decide to forsake the world, when we decide even to use the language of Jesus to die to ourselves, to take up our cross and follow Christ, we're recognizing that it's better, that freedom is found in submission to Christ, not being independent from him. So we forsake the world and we place our faith in Jesus. The Christian life is one of joyful, lifelong service to a good master. There is no better master to serve. And we all have to serve someone. And serving Christ, there's no greater joy. There's no greater gift. There's no better place to be. The Christian life not only is one of joyful, lifelong service to a good master, but think about this. The Christian life is also one marked by permanency. The man whose ear was nailed to the doorpost was to be a servant of that man forever. Likewise, our relationship with Christ is one of permanency. Jesus says that no one can take us out of his hand. We are described as being sealed with the Holy Spirit. And once you belong to Christ, there is no end date to that relationship. And that is a good thing. We are his He is ours. The Christian life also comes to us with a guarantee. Likewise, just as it did for for the voluntary bondservant in Exodus 21, the Christian life comes with a guarantee of protection and provision. Yes, we're committing to hear and obey our master, but when we come to Christ and we gladly receive this new relationship and say, we will serve you, Christ promises to care for us. As we obey him, as we are loyal to him, he is gracious to protect us, to meet our needs. The freedom of serving Christ is this freedom. It's a freedom of having no concern for our welfare because Jesus has all that figured out. Jesus has all that taken care of. I don't have to be anxious about tomorrow because I trust my heavenly father to provide for my needs. I don't have to fear what may come against me tomorrow because greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. To belong to Christ, to be his servant, means a guarantee of protection and provision. I don't have to worry about my own welfare. I am free from that, free to devote myself to Christ's cause. I can trust his provision. I can trust his wise leadership. He will lead me. He will protect me. He will provide for me. I have the simple task of saying, yes, Lord, and obeying, obeying my master. We see another echo in this sense, that the Christian life begins with a conscious decision to submit to Christ as Lord. The man who desired to be a bondservant for life had to verbally communicate that to his master and then verbally declare that before witnesses and then walk up to the door to have his ear pierced. There is a conscious decision to submit to the master Likewise for us, every one of us has heard, I hope, the good news of the gospel. That Christ calls you as a sinner to repent of sin and believe in his promise of salvation. But once you hear that message, you are accountable to make a decision. Will you say yes to Jesus or will you say no? And there's an obligation upon each of us to make a conscious, willing decision to submit ourselves to the lordship, the authority of Jesus 
Christ. The bondservant couldn't come to the master and say, hey, I'm going to go free and be my own boss, but I, I would still love for you to pay my salary. No, that didn't make sense. Likewise, you can't come to Jesus and say, hey, I would love for you to forgive my sins and take me for, to heaven, but I'm still going to live for myself and not submit to you as my Lord. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. There is a necessity of submitting to Jesus as Lord to receive all the benefits of having him as our Savior and Master. All the benefits of salvation are granted only to the one who repents of his sin and believes in the promise of the gospel. It's given only to the one who bows the knee willingly and joyfully to Christ as Master. Friend, if you've never made that decision, then I hope today that you will. And I promise you that living for Jesus, belonging to him, being owned by him, committing to obey him, renouncing your independence, renouncing your autonomy, giving up, as it were, your quote-unquote freedom to sin and to live for self and to pursue the things of the world. You give all that up, you receive something infinitely better, infinitely better. I hope that you will make that decision today and bow your knee to Christ as master. Receive his provision of salvation and give up your autonomy. This is the only way to salvation. The Christian life begins just like indentured servitude in Exodus 21. It begins with a conscious decision to submit to the master. But when you do that, you actually step into a life of true freedom. The man who says no to self, no to sin, no to the world, and says yes to Jesus comes to experience a new kind of freedom, a freedom from sin, a freedom from death, a freedom from fear because we know to whom we belong. And John eight thirty six says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Here is the paradox of grace, that if you lose your life, you save it. If you are willing to be last, you will be first. And those are most free who are actually slaves of Christ. That is true freedom. These are the echoes of salvation, these images that we see here in the Old Testament law. It shows us that loving service to a gracious master is freedom. And it also shows us, secondly, these laws show us that redemption is found in a covenant bond. It's found in a covenant bond. Again, if we can point to some of the imagery in this text, there's blood. There's blood. And the Christian life is founded on a covenant that is sealed with blood. But consider this. It's not we who have been pierced. Isaiah 53 says that he is pierced for our transgressions. If you know Jesus Christ this morning as Savior, if you belong to him, there is a covenant that seals your relationship with God. But it's not your blood on the doorpost. It's Christ's. It's by the shedding of his blood that we are brought into a saving relationship with our Lord. And consider what Jesus has done for us. Not only has he given himself to be pierced on our behalf, but Philippians 2 tells us that he took upon himself the form of what? A servant. Jesus became a servant. And he came, according to Mark chapter 10, 
not to be served, but to serve, to give himself as a ransom for many. If a a man in the Old Testament had a slave who wanted to be a lifelong slave, this had to be a mutual agreement. The master had to look at that man and say, you know what, you're one of my best. I would love to have you on long term. But if that slave was a worthless worker who couldn't be trusted, I'm guessing that the master would say, you know what, thanks for the offer, but I'm not going to pierce your ear and claim you as mine. Think about this. For us to belong to God, it depends not on the perfection of our service, but the perfection of Christ's service. God takes us to himself and owns us in this covenant relationship, not because of how good a servants we are, but because of what Jesus did, because of how great of a servant he was. We love and serve him. Because he loved and served us. And this new relationship sealed with the blood of Christ, just like this relationship in the Old Testament, is marked by a public spectacle. We just did this a few weeks ago where those who have professed faith in Christ publicly came before the church to be baptized, giving a visible, physical picture, a symbol of their union with Christ. It's a public commitment. And this public commitment is more than a symbol. It results in a new kind of relationship. Just like those slaves would have become part of the family, we too have become part of God's family. Salvation is found in adoption. We become his children, God's children. We're adopted into his family with all the benefits of belonging. We have his protection and provision and an inheritance because we've been adopted. Just like that young girl would have been treated as a daughter. So we too have been adopted into God's family. And just like that young girl would have eventually become a wife, she would have become the bride with all the special privileges and honor that came with it. We too as the church are collectively the bride of Christ. And listen, this is an arranged marriage. It is. It's an arranged one that was planned in eternity past. Those who belong to Christ have been chosen by God, pursued and loved. And the price was paid by Jesus to secure his bride. There's so many echoes of salvation in this passage. And it ought to cause us to rejoice and to consider the privilege it is for us to belong to God. And to recognize that it all comes because of the blood of Jesus. I hope that today you will rejoice in the gracious privilege of belonging to Christ. What grace, what grace that we would be brought into his household, that we would be made members of his family, that we would be recipients of his faithful love and get to be his servants. If you're not a servant of Christ today, if you've not humbled yourself before him to receive his grace And bow to him as Lord. I want to ask you a question. What's holding you back? What's holding you back? Why will you not enter into this amazingly beautiful, gracious relationship? What is it that could possibly be better than belonging to him and serving him? What counterfeit freedom of the world could possibly compare to the freedom that we find in Christ, freedom from sin, freedom from death, freedom from fear. Why would you settle for something less? I hope that you will see the goodness of God today and desire to belong to him.
Christian, I hope that you've seen the goodness of God this morning, that you've heard the echoes of salvation, and because of what you see, because of what you've sensed in the beauty of the gospel, I hope you will respond today to your Lord by saying, yes, Lord, let me be your servant forever. You be my gracious master. I delight to belong to your family. I want to be part of your household. I want to be bound to you. I want to submit today to your gracious will. I want to enjoy your protection and your provision because you've loved me and you've served me. And so in response, I want to love you with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength. God is good and gracious, isn't he? He's the kind of gracious master we can trust, a master whom we can love. So may we today embrace our place in his household, submitting to his gracious authority, giving our ear to him, committing to hear and obey to the glory of his name. Gracious Father in heaven, those of us who know you today, thank you. We thank you for inviting us to be your servants. We thank you for adopting us into your family as your children. We thank you for gathering us to your son collectively as the bride. You have poured out your grace and goodness upon us. Lord, give us a heart that is eager to love our master and to obey him. Your son Jesus told us that if we love you, we will keep your commandments. Lord, make us a church that eagerly obeys. Lord, we also thank you for these Old Testament laws that show us something of your goodness. We see your wisdom. We see your concern for the needy and the poor. We see your eagerness to protect the vulnerable and to uphold justice and righteousness. Lord, give us faith. Increase our faith to believe that, to not be intimidated or embarrassed when we come to difficult passages of Scripture. Help us to celebrate and affirm everything in your word as good. Help us to say with the psalmist, you are good and do good. Help us to say with the psalmist that all your rules are good. Increase our faith today and encourage our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.